the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, December 8th, 1914. I'm Sally Helm. Audience members pass beneath the grand entrance of the New Amsterdam Theater near New York City's Times Square. They're there to see a musical. Or really, it's better described as a musical review. The modern musical with characters breaking into song to push the story forward, that doesn't really exist yet. This show is called Watch Your Step. And what it's about is not really the point. The star of the show is the songs, which are written by an up-and-coming 26-year-old known for his sheet music and records. But this is his first full-length review. A lot is riding on it. A hit show could help set him up for a long career in show business. The songwriter's name is Irving Berlin. The songs in Watch Your Step show off his signature style. Wit, simplicity, mostly up-tempo. But one of them reveals a musical sophistication that this audience hasn't heard before, at least in popular song. It starts out as a slow, nostalgic number. But then, another singer starts singing a whole different song about how the first song is kind of a drag. I don't care for your long-haired musicians with the classy melodies. They're all full of high-toned ambitions, but the music doesn't please. And then, seamlessly, the two singers start singing their songs together. Oh, you musical demon, set your honey and dream, and won't you play me some rags? It is a feat of musical composition. At the end of the show, the audience is roaring their approval. Someone yells out, composer, composer, and Irving Berlin steps onto the stage. He looks small up there. He gives a brief, modest speech. He's not out to hog the spotlight, but it's clear to the audience that a new artistic force has arrived. Years later, after countless rounds of applause, the great Jerome Kern will render a ringing verdict on his fellow composer's accomplishments. Berlin has no place in American music, he says. Irving Berlin is American music. Today, if Irving Berlin is American music, then we need to know who was Irving Berlin and how did he utterly transform American songwriting? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
One afternoon years ago, Catherine Sweat was browsing a rare bookstore in Manhattan. Sweat is now an English teacher, but that day, what catches her eye is a piece of sheet music. I'm pretty sure it was this song called Homesick. And Christmas was a big deal in our family, and you always had to have presents for everyone. And what do you get your grandfather who has everything and who's so old? (laughs) Sweat's very old grandfather was Irving Berlin. And the song she found, Homesick, he wrote it. And I thought, okay, I'll give him this. And in his thank you note, he said, thank you so much. This was so great. This was a song I don't remember writing. (laughs) (laughs) He wrote so many that some of them just slipped his mind. I mean, of course. Do you remember every podcast you've done? I mean, do I remember every poem I've written? No, there are things you forget. You know, I think I do remember every podcast that I've done, but I have not done 1,500 of them. That is how many pieces of music Irving Berlin wrote in his lifetime. It helped that he lived to the age of 101. And that also means that he was around for the first nearly 30 years of Sweat's life. She remembers him well. He was a highly energetic man, like into his 80s, he only had a little bit of gray hair and he just couldn't sit still. I remember him popping up from the dinner table. He was a real night owl. On some of those late nights, Sweat says, she'd be up with her friends and her grandfather would drop in to say hello. He had a chair he would sit in because he was an old man. So there's a particular hard, high (laughs) chair. And he would come and hang out with us, asking us about the music we were listening to. (laughs) He was curious about popular music, especially in the 60s and 70s. (laughs) Like he was very interested by the Beatles because I think he saw them as in some way continuing on in that popular songwriting tradition. Everybody from Lennon and McCartney to Olivia Rodrigo and beyond, either consciously or unconsciously, is being influenced by Berlin. That's James Kaplan, author of Irving Berlin, New York Genius. What do I mean by that? They're being influenced by simplicity, by repetition, by catchiness, by melodies and lyrics that grab the listener and hold on and won't let go. Berlin shapes pop music to this day. And the music that shaped him, it's a far cry from Lennon and McCartney and Rodrigo. His life as a songwriter really begins when he's a young teenager living on New York City's Lower East Side. You could hear hurdy-gurdies. You could hear player pianos. You could hear buskers on the street. Music was constantly in the air on the Lower East Side. Back then... Irving Berlin is Izzy Baleen. His parents had immigrated to the U.S. from Russia when he was young, and he shared a musical talent with his father. His dad was a cantor, someone who led the songs at Jewish services. But when Izzy is 13, his father dies. The family is thrown into poverty. And Izzy starts to feel that he's got to do something. He doesn't want to be just another mouth to feed. The 14-year-old Izzy Baleen felt himself such a financial drag on this family that was desperately struggling just to have food on the table that uh, he did this unbelievable thing. He left. He left his family's home, left the apartment, and went out on the street, on the Bowery, to try and scrape together a living, mainly at first by busking on the street. Busking. 
He's literally singing on street corners or in saloons, hoping for tips. Then one day, in what's now Chinatown, he finds himself in a bar called the Pelham Cafe. And it is merry chaos inside the bar. It is packed with all male patrons. There's sawdust on the floor. The sawdust is full of spilled beer. And the men are having a jolly old time listening to a singing waiter. And little Izzy, age 14, thinks, well, I I could do this. And he manages to convince the owner and very quickly shows that not only is he a terrific singing waiter, but he has this unique gift to take the popular songs of the day and invent dirty lyrics. This is not what the other singing waiters are doing. They're just singing what everyone is singing in those days. And the most well-known songs of the day aren't all that deep. They're trivial little ditties. They tend towards melodrama. So that's what's mostly playing in the Pelham Cafe. The pianist in the bar would strike up one of the popular songs of the day, maybe Only a Bird in a Gilded Cage. Sappy, way over-sentimental. And this is why Izzy loved making up dirty lyrics. Right, it cuts through all that kind of... It cuts through... And you can just imagine that the oiled-up patrons of his bar, well into their cups, filled with beer, loved it. Izzy is funny. He's making things up on the spot and getting instant feedback, tips or no tips. But he's not yet writing songs of his own, just improvising dirtier versions of what's already out there. That changes when a pianist at a competing bar publishes a song that becomes a big hit. Suddenly the Pelham is losing customers. So the owner of the Pelham Cafe says to his piano player and to his brilliant young singing waiter, Izzy Bellin, you're so clever, why don't you write a song? That first song is nothing special. But it's remembered for the way he signs the sheet music. I, Berlin. All the immigrants in those days wanted to be as American as possible and as unimmigrant like as possible. So he becomes Izzy Berlin. And then in very short order, Irving Berlin. To get their song published, Berlin and the pianist have to go uptown. Almost all the sheet music publishers are on one block in Manhattan, 28th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues. It's lined with brownstones, brownstones filled with piano players making up new songs. It's known as Tin Pan Alley. When you're out on the street, what you heard was sheer chaos, musical <laughs> chaos. They called it Tin Pan Alley because it sounded like a, a hundred people banging tin pans at the same time. <laughs> right, because in one room it might sound like a song taking form, but out on the street it's like all these piano lines are crossing. You just can't make head it's or tails cr- of it, I It's imagine. crazy. It's crazy. The sheet music publishers on Tin Pan Alley are churning out 25,000 new songs a year for people to buy and play on their upright pianos, or for musicians to sing on stage. Berlin and the pianist shop their song around. And someone wants it. They make the sale. Though it doesn't change their fortunes much. That year, their royalties are a whopping 75 cents. Still, it's encouraging. So Berlin keeps writing, and he starts to get better. In 1909, he bundles up some satirical lyrics he'd written and takes them to a Tin Pan Alley publisher. No music, just lyrics. But the publisher asks, 
I suppose you have a tune to this thing. Berlin has nothing like a tune to this thing, but he says, of course I do. And so <laughs> he's, he's shepherded into one of the enclosures in the office where there's a piano and a pianist. And uh, Berlin proceeds to sing this, this melody that he's making up right on the spot. Wow. It's sort of like improvising a song at the Pelham. But instead of a drunken audience and a sawdust-covered floor, it's basically a job interview at a serious music publishing company. And Berlin nails it. The publisher not only buys his song, he hires Berlin to write songs. Soon enough, Berlin is being paid to add to the daily cacophony of Tin Pan Alley. Though he is not banging the piano keys himself. Because though this Lower East Side prodigy has risen higher, faster than he ever expected, there is still one big thing he can't do. He can't write music, he can't read music, he can't play the piano. And so the way he worked was with what was called a musical secretary. There would be somebody who knew how to play the piano and knew how to write music and read music sitting at the piano. Berlin would stand next to the piano and he would sing the tune he had in mind. And the piano player would write down the notes and write down the harmony on a staff sheet and a song would emerge to which Berlin would then affix lyrics. It was an odd method, but it was a method that he depended on. He depends on it to the tune of $25 a week. He also gets royalties from his published songs. Conditions have changed for the kid who left home at age 14 to busk for spare change. He's now a young man with a good job doing what he loves. So here he is at age 21, 22. He's got some money. He reconnected, of course, with his mother and uh, brothers and sisters. And he's doing well enough that he finds himself able to take a winter vacation. In the winter of 1910, 1911, he's going to go down to Florida. Florida? Where else? He goes to Penn Station to catch a train. He's got a few hours to kill. And he realizes he's not far from Tin Pan Alley. Why not head over there and start working on a song that will profoundly change the course of his life? Of course, Berlin doesn't know that's what he's doing. All he knows is... He had a tune kicking around his head and a couple of lyrics. So he went back to the office instead of having to sit in the waiting room at Penn Station, found one of the piano players, and sang the tune. The pianist jots down the musical notes. Berlin scribbles out the lyrics. And then, not thinking much more about it, he went back to Penn Station uptown and got on a train, went to Florida, and had a nice vacation. That song he tossed off while killing time, it is about to become a sensation. Not only a huge hit for Berlin himself, but a history-changing piece of music. The song is called Alexander's Ragtime Band. Ragtime was really popular in 1911. It was a style of music that had originated with Black American musicians, people like Scott Joplin. Berlin was a fan, but in this case, he hadn't actually composed a ragtime tune himself. He'd written about ragtime. Alexander's ragtime band is not a ragtime. It's more like a march. The song is really an ode to ragtime, telling people, you better listen up. We're doing things differently here in America. We've got this great art form. As Berlin himself said, the first words of the chorus. Come on in here, come on in here, Alexander Ragtime Band. 
come on in here. He is calling on his audience, the audience out there in America, in England, and across Europe, to get with the American century with the snap, crackle, and pop of American culture. They can play the beautiful like you never heard before. Not fusty old European culture, but American culture, which is all about speed and vigor. And this song became an instant hit, selling like crazy all across America. And then the sheet music and the discs traveled across the Atlantic. And suddenly, this was the real beginning of the American century. Soon after the song is released, Variety magazine calls it the musical sensation of the decade. And this is 1911. The decade has only just begun. Bessie Smith's great recording of Alexander's Ragtime Band gives me goosebumps even just to talk about Bessie Smith singing that song. It's all just so infectious. The tune is infectious. The lyric is infectious. Listen to the bugle call. America is infectious, and Berlin himself is infectious. Berlin is even invited to perform at a theater in London. They're paying him a half a million dollars to sail across the Atlantic and to sing Alexander's Ragtime Band. You mean a half a million dollars in dollars of those days? Correct. A half a million dollars. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He sails across the Atlantic. And this is, I should say, this is a guy who is perpetually anxious. He had what he called songwriter's stomach. His stomach was always churning. He never really truly believed in the success he had or that anything would be a success. But He sails across the Atlantic and takes the train from Southampton to London and takes a horse-drawn cab from the train station and gets out of the horse-drawn cab. And there is a news kid on the street selling his papers and whistling Alexander's Ragtime Band. Wow, it must have just been surreal. 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 And he's only getting started. What is surreal in this moment will come to seem normal. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's 1912. Alexander's ragtime band has sold two million copies, and its composer, Irving Berlin, has just gotten married to the singer Dorothy Getz. The two of them travel to Cuba for their honeymoon. There's a photo of them on the deck of an ocean liner. 
He's dapper in a Hamburg hat and stylish winter coat. She's wrapped in fur. Neither can seem to stop smiling. It's a glorious chapter in the life of Irving Berlin. And it's about to end. The couple arrives in Cuba during an outbreak of typhoid. Getz contracts a bad case, which sends them quickly back to New York. She sees the best doctors, but continues to decline. And in July, she dies, just six months into their marriage. Berlin is plunged into mourning and into his first artistic crisis. He tries to write what he's feeling, but he can't capture it, at least at first. Then gradually, over time, his grief becomes words. If life with his wife had been full of sunshine and roses, now... The sunshine had fled, the roses were dead. The roses were dead, the lyrics say. He titles the song, When I Lost You. Lawrence Maslon is a professor at NYU, an expert on American musical theater. He says, When I Lost You is Berlin's first meaningful ballad. I've referred to it as a haiku of grief because it's so simple and it's so short that any elaboration of it would detract from it. It wasn't highfalutin language. He was expressing things with a particular sensibility that everyone could relate to. So I think that was his genius to write things that millions of Americans felt, but only he could articulate. Berlin's breakthrough at the Pelham Cafe was to cut through the sentimental songs of the day with something funny. But now his lyrics are going much deeper. They're drawing on raw emotion. Maslon says, contrast When I Lost You with another popular song of the time about loss. It was called Hello Central, Give Me Heaven, about a little girl making a long-distance call to her mom, who's died. Hello Central, give me a heaven, my mom And it sold really well. It made a lot of people cry but it's as phony as a $3 bill. I mean, it's a completely sentimental, phony conceit for a song. But Berlin's grief-stricken ballad? It doesn't feel like a gimmick. It doesn't seem like it's written because some guy woke up that morning and said, I got a great idea. He was writing from the heart. So Berlin's major contribution is to start to write songs that are more timeless. Berlin starts working again. He's still using the tricks he discovered as a young man, writing songs that are simple, catchy, direct, but in the service of deep feeling. And his career is taking off. He writes that review, Watch Your Step. It premieres uptown in this growing theater district called Broadway and features his first famous double song, two songs sung together. One is funny and upbeat, the other is more sincere. 
the two impulses that he's beginning to combine. Variety reviews the show and gives it a rave. The magazine describes Irving Berlin as one of the greatest lyric writers America has ever produced. This would be the perfect moment for Irving Berlin to take the next step in his career, to create Broadway as we know it. But that's not what happens. Because it's now that he gets a consequential letter. James Kaplan tells us, America has entered the First World War, and Irving Berlin, a newly naturalized citizen, is drafted. What does that mean for him? How does he find (laughs) being a soldier? Uh, He hates it. (laughs) He's a wealthy young bachelor living in a fancy apartment with a maid and a butler. (laughs) And suddenly he finds himself in Camp Upton in Yaphank, Long Island, having to go to sleep in a barracks with 500 other guys and be awakened every morning by a bugle call, Reveille, at 5 a.m. And it's just totally intolerable. This is a guy who's used to staying up writing late into the night. Lucky for Berlin, his base commander is trying to raise money for a new rec center. He asks Berlin to write a musical review as a fundraiser. Berlin says, sure, if I can sleep in as late as I want. (laughs) (laughs) And the commander says, done deal. And so Berlin writes this review. It's a funny show, satirical show about the army called Yip, Yip, Yapang. I've been a soldier quite a while and I would like to state the life is simply wonderful. The army food is great. And the, the centerpiece of the show is the song, Oh, How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning. Someday I'm going to murder the bugler. Someday they're going to find him dead. <laughs> he really draws from experience there of what he felt in the army. For the hardest blow of all is to hear the bugler call. You gotta get up, you gotta get up, you gotta get up this morning. And as my mother always said, oh, how I hate to get up in the morning was the family theme song. (laughs) Berlin's granddaughter, Catherine Sweat, again. She loves that song by her grandfather. I've always liked his funny songs, it's true. But (laughs) I think when I was a teenager, I loved the sappy ones, the Mm -hmm. torch songs, because I was a teenager and full of angst. Many of Berlin's torch songs are written for Sweat's grandmother, Berlin's second wife, Ellen Mackey. He meets her after the First World War in 1924, and they fall in love. She's a fiction writer from a wealthy Catholic family. While they're courting, Berlin writes love songs for Mackie. I was discussing a book with my students, and they were talking about sort of gender stereotypes, and they said that the stereotype of the person who moons over love is a woman. Hmm. And for me, because my grandfather wrote all those songs, I thought of men as moving <laughs> and, you know, bearing torches. I think I knew that, no, you know, men fall in love. Men have their hearts broken. He had written songs for my grandmother. Was he romantic, do you think, like in knowing him? I heard it in the songs. I mean, does any teenager think an old man is romantic? Of course not. <laughs> but they were loving Mackie's father disapproves of her relationship with the Jewish songwriter. When the couple marries, he disowns her. But nevertheless, things are looking up for Irving Berlin. He owns his own Broadway theater now. His annual reviews are packing the house and drawing praise from critics. And then, James Kaplan tells us, things change once again. 
a couple of things happen in quick succession after he marries Ellen Mackey. The couple have a son, Irving Berlin Jr., who dies at three months old from crib death. Oh, my God. On Christmas Day, by the way, 1928. It's an unspeakable tragedy. The following year is 1929, and in the stock market crash of October 1929, Berlin loses everything he has. $5 million in 1929 dollars. That's almost $90 million today. The Depression, the loss of his son, these are two very hard blows. And a third blow? Berlin's first movie project is a total failure. Nearly all the songs are cut. Berlin sinks into sadness and his second bout of writer's block. He suffers this dry spell. It's the onset of the depression that is to plague him throughout his life. And it really began here when he found himself for the first two or three years of the decade unable to come up with anything. Until, that is, he starts working with a brilliant young playwright named Moss Hart. In 1932, he and Berlin hit on an idea for an innovative review. They call it As Thousands Cheer. The gimmick of this review is that the show is a newspaper. Instead of acts or discrete songs throughout the show, it has a sports section, financial section, a news section, a comics section, and Berlin writes clever songs to go with the section of the show. There's an advice column, a society gossip column, a weather section. Intermission, everybody's out in the lobby, buzz, buzz, buzz. Great show, fantastic show, how clever. It's amazing. Act two starts with a lighthearted sketch. Everyone's in good spirits. And immediately after the sketch, a newspaper headline descends from the upper regions of the stage in gigantic black type. It reads, Unknown Negro Lynched by Angry Mob. Ethel Waters, an acclaimed Harlem performer, walks on stage. It's the first time a Black performer is starring alongside white actors in a Broadway show. And she's singing this great song, this powerful song, this amazing song that Irving Berlin has written called Supper Time. Kids will soon be yelling for their supper time. And the gist of the song is that her husband is not coming home from supper because he has been lynched. All I keep explaining when they ask me where he's gone. And the audience is just sitting there, dead silent, with their mouths open, listening to the song, having to look at this headline and at the end of the show, a lot of people are outraged. A review was written in the New Yorker magazine condemning this number by Ethel Waters, uh, this brilliant song. Condemning it in what terms? What do people object to? The song was criticized on the absolutely spurious grounds of being in bad taste. Though lynchings were decried in many quarters, white people didn't want to know about them. It's Berlin's first time taking a serious political stand in his art. Over the decades, he's evolved from saloon songs to comic songs to ballads of heartbreak. And now he's writing to capture an American tragedy. He understood that it was important to 
cry out about what was wrong with the world. A world that grows even worse as World War II approaches. Berlin gets a call from the manager of a popular radio singer, Kate Smith, asking if he has any patriotic songs she can perform. So he pulls out a tucked away piece of music from his suitcase, a song written when he was a soldier. He gives it to Smith. And she sang it on the premiere episode of her radio show in the fall of 1938, which happened just days after Kristallnacht in Germany. God Bless America becomes an instant huge hit, such a huge hit that many Americans call for it to become the new national anthem. At the same time, it also becomes a gigantic cause of contention. The wave of anti-Semitism across America seizes on this song written by this immigrant Jew and asks what right this immigrant Jew has to write a song called God Bless America. The song may have started its public life as a point of controversy, but it's grown into a classic. Berlin's granddaughter, Catherine Sweat, told us, of all the songs he wrote, he called God Bless America his favorite. I think he's that generation of immigrants that he really believed in this country. And though I don't think he was particularly naive about the problems here, I think he was a very strong patriot. After writing God Bless America, Irving Berlin, originally Izzy Baleen, the Jewish immigrant from Russia and the Lower East Side, does something just as remarkable. He writes an iconic Christmas song. The lyrics to White Christmas are both tender and melancholy. They evoke the beauty of the holiday as sung by someone far from home, longing to return. That's just part of his music, right? The lyrics and the melodies are often in conflict. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's part of the richness. Just like the ones I used to know. It's a song of great simplicity, of pure nostalgia, of strong visual images. Where the treetops glisten. It's a song of extremely infectious melody, and Bing Crosby's recording of White Christmas is sent overseas to soldiers and sailors in Europe and in the South Pacific and becomes this sort of talisman for terrified and homesick young soldiers and sailors who are thousands of miles from home and for all the families that are missing their sons and relatives who are overseas. Listen carefully, and you might even hear a tinge of the sadness that Berlin himself connected to Christmas, the day his infant son died. But for all that... It becomes a standard and becomes the biggest selling record of all time. Popular taste would eventually pass him by, as it does to even great artists but not before he wrote the hit Broadway musical Annie Get Your Gun and the musical scores for tons of Hollywood movies. He did it in the way he'd always done, with deceptively simple lyrics and pleasing repetition in the voice of ordinary people dealing with pain and joy and everything in between. James Kaplan says it's this approach that opened the way for the countless artists who followed him. 
if you're writing songs and you're doing those things and garnering an audience, you have Irving Berlin to thank because he's the guy who, who really started it all. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Thanks to our guests, James Kaplan, author of Irving Berlin, New York Genius. Lawrence Maslon, arts professor at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts and host of the radio show Broadway to Main Street on WLIW. And Catherine Barrett-Sweat, English teacher, poet, and granddaughter of Irving Berlin and Ellen Mackey. He did write a song for me. <laughs> but what song? I was a slightly pushy child and it went, Catherine, dear Catherine, between us, I wouldn't compare you to Venus, which wasn't very friendly, but I would be willing to state you're greater than Catherine the Great. You're all the aces in the deck, but outside of that, you're a pain in the neck. <laughs> and I, I like that, but, you know, it's important to be able to laugh at yourself. It makes it a real Irving Berlin song. Yes, exactly. Keep an eye out for Kaplan's forthcoming book, Three Shades of Blue, about the jazz legends Miles Davis, John Coltrane, and Bill Evans, coming in 2023. You can read Sweat's poetry in her book, Voice Message, published by Autumn House Press. This episode was produced by Julia Press. It was story edited by Jim O'Grady and sound designed by Brian Flood. History This Week is also produced by Morgan Gibbons, Corinne Wallace, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>